If you want this podcast free of ads, follow us now on patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's, a, it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. What in the world is happening on Wall Street? The economic indicators. Who knows where this is going to end up? To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you? It is podcast time. It's the Thursday podcast. This Thursday, we're going to talk about the United Kingdom and what is going on at the higher echelons. But we're going to frame it in an unusual, maybe different way. John, how are you, Ed? I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. How have you been all week? Well, you, you know me, me in, in in training now. I so. know. I know. <laughs> I'm he is great. a specimen. Olympian is the only way I can describe. Although I've jarred it. my neck and I can't twist my head properly now. But anyway, I won't even ask you how. No, best not. Now, don't be taking this training too seriously. You've got to. You've got to realize that. Ah, Mac. Now, come on. If you're if you're going to do something. You got to do it right, huh? All right, okay, exactly. This is career advice by John Davis. Anyway, what have we got today? What what is what is ailing you? What's I tell you what, you know, over the last few years, there's been a kind of a, a new language in how we speak, and you hear it all the time on on the radio and stuff. And it was all about the R numbers for COVID and stuff. Oh, Jesus, yeah, yeah, yeah. But there seems to be uh, recently an R number for. Boris Johnson's parties because <laughs> every day there's a new party that we learn about and if it's one for Dominic Ra, one for you know the summer party one for this that and all the rest there's an R number which seems to be growing exponentially it is growing exponentially and it's like it's like I suppose lots of things that once one party or one indiscretion is exposed then you just realise there's loads and loads. There's of loads, yeah. There's loads and loads of them. And it does, I mean, you know, what's going on in the UK from an economic and a political point of view is fascinating. And we're going to talk to Robert Shrimsley of the FT about he's Johnson's. Good. Yeah, he is. He's great. About Johnson's future, what's going to happen. But I've been reading a fascinating book this week, John. Oh. Uh, by a guy called Joseph Campbell. And the book is called The Hero with a Thousand Faces. And it's been described as one of the most important books of the 20th century. And what it's about, so Campbell was this anthropologist, mythologist, American. Mm. And what he did was he looked at all, and this is interesting about the Johnson. We're going to look at it from a different idea, right? Okay. And I was also, I was listening 
to the Fontaines the other day, you know, the Fontaines DC. Fantastic band. Right? And the, the name of their album is A Hero's Death. And I was thinking of this notion of the hero, right? Yeah. Now, Campbell's book is about the fact that all stories that humans have told ourselves since time immemorial are all the same. They basically go through five or six stages of the hero. So basically there's a hero, yeah. right? So you look at all mythology. Yeah. You look at all religion, right? Yeah. You look at, when I'm talking about the stories we tell, fairy stories, children's stories, all these things, the stories we tell each other, right? The stories that humans seem to need to express to each other go through five phases. And there are no other stories in humanity. Right. right? I and always just, thought it was just the beginning, middle, and end. <laughs> <laughs> but, it's the, it's, but it is really the beginning, middle, and end, right? Yeah, go on, And so Campbell's this. book is all about the notion of the hero in mythology. And his idea is that the hero in mythology, right, it could be Jesus Christ, mm-hmm. it could be Zeus, it could be whatever, right? Go through, there's the hero, and the first iteration is the hero parts from his land or her land and then they are in exile for a while and then they hear something they learn something in exile and they understand that the key to salvation for their tribe they have learned and they feel compelled to come back then so there's the hero's exile then there's the hero's initiation then there's the hero's return and the hero returns to the scene basically to his people or her people Mm. okay and in the initiation, there's all sorts of meeting the goddess and woman as temptress and all these really old things, but they're not really, they're all about women as being the source of life, the source of power, the source of energy. And this idea that the hero learns these things, then they come back and then the hero is rejected by his own people. And then ultimately they triumph. So, I mean, he talks about it, the first, the first is the adventure of the hero, right? So it's the departure. It's the call to adventure, the refusal of the calls of the hero refuses the call, then he's persuaded by the supernatural or something unusual, there's some revelationary force, right? And then you go, and it's the initiation, it's how he actually begins the process of new understanding. This is precisely what the Buddha did. You know, the Buddha goes off. Yes. This is what Jesus does for 40 days in the desert. It's what Moses does with the burning bush. It's all this idea. It's exactly the same story, right? Yeah. And then, of course, the hero returns. Initially, he refuses to return. He has to be persuaded to return. And, you know, the idea is the hero then comes back and people follow him, right? Yeah. So these are basically the stories. He has to prove himself. This is, but these are the stories we tell each other. So Campbell's book, basically, and I'm, I'm staying up all night reading it. It's right. extraordinary, right? Takes all mythology and all religion, and it says all these stories come from a common source. And the common source is very, very ancient, and it's very elemental to the way in which we understand the world. So if you think of the story of Jesus as a great example, yeah. you know, it's the hero in exile. He's not believed. He goes away. He learns something. He goes out into the desert. He appreciates some great knowledge. He talks to, for example, God, his father, yeah, et cetera. Yeah. He comes back. Of course, he's initially embraced. Then, of course, he's threatened. Then he returns. Then he dies on the cross for our salvation, right? Yeah. So this is great. And, and all and, these and, and, and that is not a unique story No, the Buddha, Buddha, the same thing. Yeah. Buddha goes yeah. off for years and years and years, and the Buddha learns all these things. And then, of course, the problem with the Buddha is, the question is, does he come back or does he just learn this blissful life? And then, of course, it, it's the idea that the hero is constantly being 
torn by obligations to people and family and, and tribe. And it's it's like the source of all these great stories. So, you know, you go back to the Greek mythology and you look at our mythology. So our mythology is the Garden of Eden. So mm. you have Adam and Eve and the snake and the apple and God. And God is saying, look, you're in the Garden of Eden here. Chill out, relax, hang with each other, have the best sex possible. You have all the good stuff. Yeah. Don't eat the apple. Yeah, yeah, Don't yeah. eat the fucking apple, yeah. okay? It's just right? one thing. Just one, just one thing. And watch that snake, that snake in the grass. And then, of course, we eat the apple. Suddenly the Garden of Eden is destroyed and we end up in the human world with grief and murder and death, sickness, yeah. all these things that didn't exist in the Garden of Eden. Now, if you look at Greek mythology, right, you've exactly, this, there was this thing called the Golden Age. And the Golden Age was after Zeus and Prometheus created humans in yes. their liking. Yeah. And humans had this amazing world. But the problem, and it's the same idea, is humans are always curious. So humans wanted a little bit of edge. It's the same way as Adam and Eve. They wanted an edge. They want to say, oh, don't eat the apple. Why not? It's like when you tell a human, don't close, don't yeah. go through that door. Oh, fuck off, I'm going through the door, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, So yeah. it's humans want an edge because we're, we're, we're risk-taking, right? And then, of course, what you see is the golden age, Prometheus gets fired. This was their, their issue. Gives fire to humans. Zeus has said, don't give them fire because fire is a technology that will enable them. And then what does he do? He finds out Prometheus gives them fire and he creates you know, this Pandora's box. Yes. And he gives the Pandora's box, okay, to Prometheus's brother, by the way, right? And he says, don't open the box. And of course, what does your man do? Open gotta, the I just got to, I just got to open this box. And out <laughs> from the box comes all the calamities of life. So suddenly the humans and the Greeks go from the golden age to the real world. Yeah. Okay. Because yeah. they went against the great God. Humans and the Christian, Judeo-Christian tradition do the same thing. We eat the apple, Eve eats the apple. And, and, that's, and that's essentially Pandora's box is um, the apple. Yeah, yeah. yeah and yeah. by the way, there's a great book called Eve Was Framed <laughs> by Helena Kennedy, which is about how women have been treated in the law. It's really, really brilliant. Uh, right. Yeah, 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 anyway, yeah. Anyway, so those stories, like even the story of the Great Flood stems from something that could have happened, right? Yeah. So if you look at geology, so if you think of the Mediterranean, all myths have the myth of the Great Flood. Greek mythology. Indian mythology. Yes, that's right, yeah. Judeo-Christian mythology. All of this great flood. And there is a suggestion, more than a session, that actually humans did see a great flood. And that is the following, right? That if you think of the Mediterranean Sea. Yeah. The Mediterranean Sea was a big crater, an indentation in the world between what is now Africa and Europe. Yeah. And at a certain stage, the Atlantic was a long corridor, right? It didn't come into the Mediterranean. And of course, global warming increased the Atlantic's, yeah. the, the volume of the Atlantic. It spilled over at the tiny connection between Africa and Spain. Yeah. And it gushed through and it filled up the Mediterranean. That's the first great flood. But the second great flood happened about 13,000 years ago, which is the Black Sea. What was now the Black Sea was also just an indentation, a big crater. Yeah. Okay. And after years and years of the Mediterranean pushing up against the land which is now around Istanbul, right, in Turkey, it actually eventually broke through again from global warming, yes. right, at yeah, the ice yeah, age, yeah, yeah. as the ice age retreated. And humans saw that flood. Human cavemen saw that because we were around then. We were hanging out, right? <laughs> and they saw 
an enormous flood where hundreds of millions of cubic litres of water flooded from the Mediterranean into the Black Sea, destroyed everything, and only the humans that got up to the highest point survived. And the interesting thing is, we forget that that wasn't made up. They saw it. People yeah. saw that and they told their kids in the campfires around looking at the stars thinking, man, we've just seen something and that became part of mythology. So the idea is all myths stem from human sources. Yes. And the reason we're going to talk about Johnson in the context of this Well, myth, I was going to say, are you putting Johnson no, in the same bracket as Prometheus and uh, no, Zeus? No, no, no. Although he, he would love he would that. Love that. No, but what I'm saying is that, what I'm saying is that the stories we tell each other are unbelievably powerful. And the framework within which we see political leaders, even though they don't actually know it, are imbibing from this deep well of the same story. So the Brexiteers and Johnson, their hero and their heroic figure, right? It's, the, it's, 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 it's against the same idea. He emerges, right? He then goes into exile. Yeah. Even though he's got this great idea, right? Brexit. Then in exile, he refines his Brexit idea. He comes back and in triumph, he wins Brexit, right? But this, this is, this. look at the story from this thing, right? Yeah. yeah and he yeah. is then the hero because all, you know the way they say all movements need heroes? Yeah. But all heroes need stories. And the story's the same all the time, yeah. right? And so what I'm saying is what I find fascinating about this is not the economics and politics, right? I know this is the stuff we do. Yeah. But I love the idea that somewhere deep in our heads as humans, there are a set of touchstones, mythical, quasi-religious touchstones that we feel we need in order to embrace a new idea or a hero or a new movement. And, you know, Johnson as hero is bizarre because I think he's a total buffoon, yes. right? Yeah. But it doesn't matter. In England, enough people believe this myth. And so Brexit is the great big revelation that if they can just release themselves from the shackle of the oppressive European community, right, our European <laughs> Union, that they will bound free into this great <laughs> heroic world, right? Yeah. And it's, it's, how, it's how stories make make fools of us as well. Yeah, yeah. So I think that if you read your, if you read your Joseph Campbell, you can see I've been staying up too late at night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you read your Joseph... Lack of sleep. <laughs> but if you read your Joseph Campbell, okay, the book's called The Hero with a Thousand Faces. It's really fascinating. It's deep mythology. It's storytelling. It's story making. But what it does is it kind of makes sense of a lot of our politics, and it also makes sense of the culture wars. And this is what I want to get to the point. It's another way we feel, you know, our educated mind is trained to be rational and to decide that we're going to have discussions about society in the context of economics, of balance sheets, mm. of inflation, of whatever, right? But our primordial mind, it's not only irrational, but it's fanciful. And it's based on storytelling and myth-making mm. and hero-generating. And sometimes I think if you want to understand culture wars, and Johnson and Britain is, full, is in a culture war, you've got to understand that no amount of rational, economic, logical, legalistic, technocratic talk is going to deflect from the essential seduction of the hero myth, which is incredibly deep. 
And ironically, somebody as buffoonish as Johnson has managed to get into English people's heads as this sort of heroic character and has taken them for a ride. Yeah. So let's go to London, talk about Johnson to Robert Shrimsley. He's the FT's UK chief political commentator. He's an old mate, mate of the podcast. And he also got the great title called the UK editor at large. <laughs> Who doesn't want a job like that? He's sneaking around sneaking the place. Sneaking scoping around the place. Exactly. <laughs> Scribbling things, writing things down. Anyway, great mind. Always got a great insight into UK politics. Let's go and talk to Robert. Now, unless you've been living under a stone, you won't have missed what's going on in the UK with Boris Johnson and the parties and the scandals and the calamities and etc. And it now looks as if this is a man, a prime minister, whose days are numbered or may well be numbered. And the question now is, what the hell has gone on the last week? Why is it important? Why has the mood changed? And what's the lie of the land? And I am delighted to be talking to my old mate, Robert Shrimsley of the FT. Robert, how are you? I'm good, thanks. Thanks. Good to be here as always, David. Great to talk to you. Okay, let's get get right in. What has happened to have tipped this thing over, where Boris Johnson now, on all the UK papers over the last couple of days, is this guy's heading for the door? What's happening? Okay, well, just before I get to the immediate, let me just give you a little bit of context from, yeah. from, from the last year. One of the things that's gone almost unnoticed, I think, in British politics is that actually Boris Johnson's popularity has been falling pretty steadily for at least the last six months. He got a big boost from the vaccine programme, as I think a lot of leaders did, but he was early into it and he could claim the degree of sagacity around it. He got a big boost for that. As that began to wane, you know, the, the political antibodies it had delivered to him also began to wane. So since June, his numbers have been falling slowly, but quite clearly. And although you get the odd poll that pops up, the trend is absolutely clearly downwards. So for one thing, a bit of the magic's been wearing off anyway. Even so, September, October, you looked at where he was and you thought, he, he's just bestriding British politics. There's no comparison. Keir Starmer, the opposition Labour Party are nowhere. He's got the whole table. He owns the table. And since then, there have been a series of really utterly self-inflicted wounds, ridiculous missteps. To offer a few examples, uh, one of his mates in the parliamentary party found himself in trouble for having breached the rules around paid advocacy. This stuff pops up from time to time. The parliamentary standards bodies said he had to be suspended for a month, quite a big sanction. And Boris Johnson decided on the back of this to change the standards rules to get this man off. The backlash of this was so huge, he had to back down. And a guy, a friend of his, who might have got away with a month and come back, is now out of parliament, led to a by-election which the Conservative Party lost. More important than that has been the drip, drip, drip of stories about the way Downing Street conducted itself during the period of lockdown, with ever more information coming that they were holding social gatherings, parties, breaching the rules day after day, basically. And some of this is being fed by his old, his nemesis, Dominic Cummings, his chief strategist, who he fell out with very, very badly, and who is dripping out information into the public domain because he actually thinks Johnson needs to go. But anyway, this has been rumbling on, getting slowly worse. Can I I stop you there, Robert? So is Cummings the source of most of this, of these leaks? Or is he a significant source? He's a significant figure. Uh, He is is using his blog to drip out information about things that have been going on in Downing Street, you know, giving journalists a nudge in a particular direction. I mean, 
personally, but I'm putting it on the blog and journalists follow it up. There's also been quite a lot of leaks. A lot of people are disaffected from Johnson now who left, mostly supporters of Cummings who are putting stuff out into the public domain. But anyway, we started to get information about parties that were going on, which, which, which looked a bit dodgy. Johnson, first of all, denies any part of them taking place. He's been reassured they've always been keeping to the rules. Then we get this bizarre release of a video of his then spokesman, Allegra Stratton, laughing about one particular legal party. I mean, slightly gallows humour, to be fair on her. She wasn't mocking people. But nonetheless, they're laughing about it. So then he has to admit, well, OK, clearly there were rules broken and maybe I've been misled. So he asked the cabinet secretary, most senior civil servant in the country, to hold an inquiry, which is what prime ministers do when they yeah, want to yeah. dodge an issue. Oh, yeah. No, no, they we, get we, their top official to hold an inquiry, uh, and, and which they can therefore keep control of. Irish politicians are masters at this. And, you know, it's like, look, we'd have to have an internal inquiry, but it'll be an objective civil servant. But we know that objective civil servant gives a conclusion that we don't really like that person will end up in the back beyonds and they will go they will go from for some high-flying foreign secretary job to you know working in the department of labor down the countryside somewhere yeah so you've got it exactly yeah so it's the same here and anyway it looks like he perhaps hadn't told the cabinet secretary that this was his plan because within a few days it turns out the cabinet secretary might actually participate in one of these events albeit slightly remotely, but was aware of one anyway. And so he's then forced to step aside from uh, the inquiry. And another civil servant called Sue Gray, whose name has been on everybody's lips for the last week in Britain, is, is, is given the task of running this. So it all goes a bit quiet. There's a bit more drip, drip, drip of information. A photograph comes out in the Downing Street Garden of what one might call, you know, a, a gathering. Um, but perhaps it's just yeah. end of day, people standing around because, you know, in summer, people were using the Downing Street Garden for meetings. But then comes the bombshell of an actual social gathering where Prime Minister's principal private secretary sends out an invite to 100 people um, while the country is in semi-lockdown, at least. 100 people saying we should use the lovely weather to have a party in the garden. Socially distance, of course, bring your own bottle. So this is an absolute killer blow. And Johnson is there. He's, he's at this party. He's now said he was only at it for 25 minutes. He was just sitting in his garden. But you know, with hindsight, he recognises that this may have been a mistake. So for the first day, he tried to argue that he wouldn't answer questions about whether he was there on the grounds that we needed to wait for the inquiry to tell him if he'd been there. So <laughs> this was unsustainable. Finally, he goes to the Commons on Wednesday and delivers you know, a, a pretty unpleasant mere culpa for himself. Johnson believes you never apologise for things. So if you ever see Johnson apologising, you know he's in some substantial trouble. And it's a partial apology. It's a semi-apology. He's sorry for how things look. But of course, he actually doesn't think he broke any rules. But he's trying to sort of staunch the blood loss. And then a day later comes out, turns out that two parties were held on one particular evening, the night before the Queen buried her husband and gave us one of those most iconic pictures of her sitting mourning alone. And the night before, they, they're partying. They're in, raving on. In I mean, and, and some of the details are just exquisite. Like, so, you know, an aide dispatched with a suitcase to the co-op around the corner to get wine. One of the other staffers is playing DJ on a computer. And two <laughs> others managed to break the Johnson's son's swing. You know, which suggests that you know that they weren't just standing around nodding and chatting. I love it. I love it. So adults, we we've we've actually had our own swing gate here in Ireland, <laughs> where a politician. That's right, we did. Uh, a politician from Fine Gael, the the, the, the government party, uh, who's actually was our local, local TD yeah. here, uh, sued a 
hotel in town for injuries she received while on a swing, not realising that, obviously, people say, what state of mind were you in <laughs> as an adult on a swing? She was actually holding a glass of wine So at the then time. it turned out that she was holding it. She was holding two glasses of wine, oh, right. one in each hand on the swing. So we're, it's the same carry-on, huh. except it's in Downing Street, the night before Phil the Greek is buried. Yeah, and by the way, I mean... It, Boris Johnson's son, Wilf, is not old, so this will not have been a full-size swing, I would have to imagine, <laughs> which, which also poses a question. But anyway, this goes now. Now, Boris Johnson's not at this party. That, that's clear. But you would have thought that if someone broke his child's swing, word got back to him that the party had taken place. But anyway, it just goes on and on, and the culture of what's going on in Downing Street is becoming more and more appalling. And it's worth saying that, you know, on the same day these parties are happening, Ordinary people are holding parties and getting massive fines. There was a story about a woman in Hackney got a £12,000 fine for holding a party basically the same wow. night. Okay. So, you okay. know, this is, it absolutely goes to the one rule for them. And by the way, just as an aside, since these gatherings are meant to be illegal, it's worth knowing that Downing Street is swarming with police. Yeah, of course it is. They're all, they're all there for security purposes. You know, there's a lot of cops in Downing <laughs> Street who presumably didn't hear the disco or notice the suitcases full of wine. So it's, it's both risible and appalling. And I think the problem with this for Boris Johnson is that the public are looking at it. And they, first of all, they see total hypocrisy. Unusually, they see a hypocrisy that they completely can relate to because most of them are actually obeying the rules, apart from the ones who thought the rules were appalling, who are equally appalled because they, you brought in rules for the rest of us that you didn't actually believe in yourself. So it's a really toxic damaging it's exactly the kind of scandal that does in leaders because people can relate to it they understand it and yeah. they feel it personally so it's a disastrous position for him, him to be in so that takes us to where we are now the defense strategy for boris johnson all this process is very clear it's just buy time that's the strategy that's all there is he's set up so he's got this inquiry so the first thing he's doing is well let's actually wait for the report which might come at the end of this week, except with every new revelation of parties, it gets delayed because there's, there's a new chapter. He has, exactly. he has to investigate. <laughs> but anyway, so the first strategy, the clinics get to the day of the release of the report. The report being written by a civil servant, it can't actually say Boris Johnson should go. It probably won't even say whether he broke the law, but it will be bad and it'll be damaging. But the Conservatives are trying to spin it as, you know, look, it was awful and we'll have to do something about it. But, you know, the Prime Minister is off the hook. There'll be a spin operation. And then what he'll do is he'll sacrifice anybody in his downstream operation that is in any way contaminated by this other than himself. So we're expecting quite a big clear out, his chief of staff. I, I went the poor chap with the suitcase, so I want to know what happened to him. Yeah, well, I, mean, <laughs> I don't know if you remember, I'm so, I don't remember this, but it's a famous chapter in British political history, the so-called Night of the Long Knives, when Harold Macmillan sacked half his cabinet because he was in political trouble. And the then liberal leader, Jeremy Thorpe, stood up and said, greater love has no man than this, that he lays down his friends for his life. And that's what <laughs> Boris Johnson's going to do. So he's going to kill off a load of people who contaminate him and hope that he can say to his party, look, I'm deeply sorry, this wasn't good enough. I have learned, I will do better. Everybody who's responsible for this apart from me is gone. Let's move on together. And so that's going to be his strategy. This is kind and, of this is his oven ready moment again. It's yeah, that exactly. sort of idea. Okay. And, and, and then, then we there'll go be on. a couple of others, you know, he'll probably dangle a couple of things that they're worried about at them. So, for example, they're worried about rising energy bills. He'll probably come up with a package on that. He's going to lift all the COVID restrictions by the end of the month. That will make them happy. A few other things that they've wanted. And he'll hope by all of those things that he can just bulldoze through for the next few months and hope that the heat 
comes just, just goes out yeah. of this. The other thing that's working in his favor on this is that they don't quite know who they want instead. So yeah, that's he's always got helpful. a bit of he's got that that nerves. And the truth is, although we always talk about the Conservative Party being incredibly ruthless about its leaders, and it is, it also waits quite a long time to do them in. I mean, they're really toast before they act most of the time. You know, like that old adage about Winston Churchill's line about America is it can be counted on to do the right thing, yeah. but only after exhausting all the other options. Well, they're a bit like that. And so he's got some things that can give him hope that he can stagger on through for a bit. And the le- and already you hear lots of Tory MPs saying, well, we'll wait till the May, like big local elections in May. Let's see how they go. Firstly, no new leader really wants to lead the party into those local elections because they're likely to be pretty bad. Secondly, it gives them a chance to say, well, actually, let's hear the real mood of the public rather than opinion polls. Thirdly, it lets them off the hook of having to act yep. for a bit, which is always pleasing. And so my guess is that barring major revelations, he probably can't get through to, to, to May, but he's terribly damaged, and in my opinion, probably fatally. I think the public really is furious about this. So Conservatives have got to figure out if and when they ditch him for someone who might give him a better chance the next election. And that's the only category that matters. Let's be clear about this. There's no, there's no moral issue driving most of his Conservative, his parliamentary party. They're thinking, is this man going to cost me my seat? And yeah. that's the answer to the question. So let's look at just, I know it, it, we've, we've talked about the politics of it, the rail politics of it. Let's talk about the policy of it, because although he's kind of buffoonish and although, I mean, this is a classic sort of scandal that would engulf, I mean, you worked with him years ago, you've been at close quarters. You know, this is the sort of tiny, inconsequential in other times event that engulfs someone like Johnson. It's not a big, it's not a big sort of Suez Canal thing or a war or fallen your exchange rate collapsing or a massive recession. It's a little rave in the back of over wine. It's a little party, right? Now, well, I don't, I don't totally agree with you there, David. I mean, I know what you're saying, but it's actually it's more core. It's character. It's hypocrisy. Okay. It's breaking the laws that you set for the country. So, although yes, it's a rave, it's not a small thing. Okay, and what you're saying is this is this is actually what goes to the marrow of the voter. It's like hmm. I've gone along with these rules, you didn't. Now yeah. let's talk about the policy because even though he's you know again a sort of cartoonish character, his policies were very very radical. I mean Brexit is radical, you know leveling up is radical, entertaining the destruction of the union is radical, severing all links with the European Union. These are he was. The policy programme was quite radical. What happens to that, Johnson goes? Well, first, I slightly disagree with your categorisation of this, because I think Brexit was radical. Yeah. And some of the things that flow from, obviously, the threat to the union, that's not a policy, that's a potential consequence. But Brexit yeah. is radical. In most other respects, Johnson is actually pretty mainstream for a Conservative. You okay. know, Levelling up, agree. It, it's a move from the Thatcherite agenda to back towards investment in communities, spending on infrastructure, accepting a higher degree of taxation in order to invest in public services. This is pretty mainstream stuff. It's Brexit that makes this government radical. In all other respects, it's a very familiar looking Conservative government, though having moved away from the Thatcherite ethos of of low taxes, at least for a while. And that's one of the things that is actually an issue for Boris Johnson, because there's a big core of his party that doesn't like high spending, high intervention, and wants to get back to that kind of thing. And although, you know, that they break in different ways on the issue of his leadership, but it's an issue. It's a problem for him because they are all beginning to look at this again. But we're not getting what we wanted. Brexit, 
we wanted, you know, Singapore on Thames. We wanted low regulation, low taxes, Ireland as it was a while back, you know, a, a magnet for investment. We wanted a bonfire of regulations. And now that we've broken free of Europe and this kind of stuff. And they're not getting any of this. And we're getting green taxes, which we don't really believe in. And we're getting higher taxes to pay for the health service. So all of that stuff, it's in fact that Johnson hasn't been radical enough for them. So that's the great complexity of him. He once described himself, I think rather brilliantly, as a Brexity Hezer. Now, Hezer, that means Michael Heseltine, the former deputy prime yep. minister, who was a big interventionist and believed in regenerating other areas of the country than the South. And that is what he is. He's very radical on Brexit. And really quite recognisable in every other respect. That makes him unusual in the Conservative Party and enabled him to help build this coalition of voters, which got him into power, which got him a big majority. And one of the worries for Conservatives is, do any of the potential rivals have the ability to hold that coalition together? And what do you think? Because there's another way this coalition could go. It flips on its head. He becomes less radical on Brexit the new leader, he or she, and more radical on going back to the old Thatcherite, well, you know what, if you live in the North, just getting your bike idea. Well, I don't think they're going to do that because they've won a lot of seats okay. in those areas. And they don't want to, you know, one thing to mention, by the way, I do think it's important in deconstructing the myths around Boris Johnson is that actually most of the work in terms of building that coalition happened in the 2017 election under Theresa May. Boris Johnson got only 330,000 more votes than Theresa May did. He just got them in the right places. And, right, um, okay. So she got 42 point something percent of the vote. He got 43 point something percent of the vote. What happened in the last election is the Labour vote collapsed. So one has to be a little careful around this. But I don't know what being... I think part of the problem is Brexit is sort of, in structural constitutional terms, done. We've got all the consequences. But the, the bulk of it, with the exception of the Northern Ireland Protocol, which we may or may not come to, is done. And so what does being more radical on Brexit mean now? Well, it uh, it has to mean breaking further away from the European regulatory orbit. Yeah, actually, one of the strange things about Brexit so far is that the British government sacrificed substantial market access for freedoms it's not really using, which is a strange thing. So being radical would mean using those freedoms more, but each of those freedoms comes with a cost. There's a lot of talk about, you know, breaking away from the European data laws and using them, being much more radical to, to become a hub for tech companies that want to push forward on in different ways and want to use data. And that's mm-hmm. quite an attractive idea. And there are many people within the European Union who think the data laws are too rigid. But the problem is the UK relies on a data adequacy certificate from the EU, which is renewable, I think, every five years. And whatever you do, you can't really jeopardise that. So how radical can you be on that? There's a lot of instincts to say we should push forward and be a, in the vanguard on agri-genomics, you know, gene editing, even genetic modification of foods. A lot of support for that. But again, you hit issues around exports and imports. So so, the, so they're kind of caught in a brace, in, in a way, is what you're saying. There's no real yeah. latitude. So There's a bit. There's some. And you, I mean, you could decide, obviously, that you are going to move forward in one of those areas and take the hit on, say, gene editing and bet that the European Union actually is going to follow you down the line. But obviously that creates issues around the borders, around exports, and obviously quite specifically in Northern Ireland. Yeah. So it's all problematic. And my own sense is that Boris Johnson actually had reached the conclusion that a state of constant hostility with the EU was not helping anyone, and that he needed to calm things down. You could see in the departure of David Frost that actually 
he's looking for a way to settle the protocol issue. Now, he doesn't really want this going on and on and on. He wants it done. Yeah, he's looking to dial down the temperature with France, whether that's possible for the elections in France. I don't know. You, know. you have a clear sense across government. They're all seeing the problems that have been thrown up by Brexit and that actually, you know, we're not about to get back into the club, but it would be easier if we could just get on a little bit better. And so that's where I think it's going to be interesting because a new leader, particularly in winning the leadership, is going to want to show their Brexit credentials. And you look at polls of Conservative Party members, the most popular cabinet figures are the Brexit boosters and the Brexit hawks. So they're going to want to show that they're not a pushover. On the other hand, good government should take them towards seeking more amateur. Some sort of consensus. I just want to, before you go, because that leads us to Northern Ireland, the protocol, etc. Is there a sense that Northern Ireland just becomes weaponized by the Brexit boosters Kind of indefinitely. That's that's a that's a little it's a little gap they can kind of poke at and they can play at and and then they will have the DUP on their side anyway, and it just becomes a constant. Well, I mean, let's be clear. I mean, Northern Ireland was weaponized by everybody and all sides in this debate. This wasn't that's a true. uniquely British position, that's true. although it has certainly Britain did. I, I mean, I think it's very tricky because in a way. A lot of Conservative MPs are irritated with the DUP. They get the point the DUP has been making. They also think, rightly, that the DUP is one of the most incompetent and useless parties um, <laughs> they've ever seen. And managed, managed to be in favour of Brexit, but no manifestation of it. It's, it's <laughs> managed to you know, take a winning position where it held, them, held the balance of power in British politics, lost it, used it uselessly, and is now facing electoral catastrophes because of its own stupidity. So they look at the DUP and think, what, what do you do with these people? I mean, if the DUP's position really is, I mean, absolutely viscerally in their quietest moments, we've got to scrap the protocol and get out of this altogether, then the Conservative Party will not go that path. That is my opinion. You know, triggering of Article 16, playing hardball to get a bit better terms, yeah, they'll certainly be up for that, as long as it's working for them. But, you know, most people in British politics are not that bothered about, as I always say, they're not that bothered about Northern Ireland. They just want the issue... To, to bubble down. They don't want it to be a problem. And, you know, there's lots of people in Northern Ireland managing with this protocol now. It's got, there are definitely issues and there are definitely implementation issues where Britain has a point and things could be easier. But you, you do, you'll deal with those things at a technical level. You don't deal with them at, you know, a sort of threats of hostilities yeah, I, I start level. stomping around the room level. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I don't think there is a desire to keep it going because actually one of the problems is they won the election partly by saying, well, going to get Brexit done. Well, the protocol is a manifestation of Brexit not being done. And it can only be problematic for British politicians. You know, British, you know the British politicians don't even stand in Northern Ireland. So, you know, yeah, there's exactly. no lockers in this. So only ever on the news as a problem in terms of Brexit. So it doesn't help them. It doesn't help them if they, unless they can be shown to sort of thumping the Europeans or beating the French and that kind of stuff. And they don't have the armoury for that to be the final outcome. So if they can look like they've stood up to EU, hung tough, got a good deal, that'll be great. And in many ways, you know, they have made gains in their position on, on the protocol over the course of the, of the last year. And actually, a shrewd political move might be to say, to be de- declare victory and quit the field. So, yeah, look yeah. what we've done. We've pushed the EU back on this and this and this. And now, now we're, let's get now we're gone. On. that's the smart play here in British politics. It may not be the smart play in Northern Ireland politics, but in British politics, that's where you play it. Just finally, Johnson, 
it's a matter of months now, you think. It's not a matter of days, not a matter of weeks, it's a matter of months, and they'll, they'll cling on. What will be this guy's legacy? Interesting question. I mean, by the way, I, mean, I don't think you can rule out that he hangs on. I just don't think it's likely. I'd, so it's not, I don't think it's imminent anyway. What will be his legacy? Well, first of all, his legacy is Brexit. You know, and actually, that's a pretty enormous legacy. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, a lot of prime ministers can't leave without anything like that. Now, obviously, at that point, what you think of that legacy depends on what you think of Brexit. So there's 40-odd percent of the country that are quite impressed with that and another chunk of the country that isn't. So Brexit, number one, is his legacy. And how that plays out economically and constitutionally will be the next part of it. So the so obviously, what happens with Scotland, what happens with Northern Ireland over the medium term or short term is integrally linked to that legacy. So if we see the breakup of the union, then that's his legacy. Actually, that's bigger than Brexit. And that becomes his legacy. If we don't see the breakup of the union, then it's different. If he were to go this year, you would say he pushed the Conservatives in a new, in a new direction in terms of getting them out of the South and the rich. He delivered a Brexit that the majority of the country voted for. Yeah, and, and, and he led during the COVID crisis with variable results. You know, the UK has the highest death toll of a country in Western Europe, not per capita, but certainly just straight numbers. It did well on vaccines. It did less well on other things. So his, his legacy is mixed. But fundamentally, it's going to come down to Brexit and the union. And the truth is, we're going to have to wait a little bit for history to get a clear-eyed view on that. Robert, as always, thank you so much. That was great stuff, Robert. Really great stuff. Thanks a million. We'll talk to you Take soon. Take care. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye. Cheers, Robert. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. It dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Do you know, if I was still in London, I would join the Tory party because they are the party of parties. <laughs> the rave party. The rave. It's the legal rave. <laughs> Could you imagine they were actually found like the Metropolitan Police followed a bunch of Tories in an old beat up Austin <laughs> yeah. Vauxhall 
out to a field in Shropshire. And they have a massive <laughs> yoke dropping rave. Yeah. But they'd have bottles of gin. <laughs> It'd be quite funny, wouldn't it? It'd be brilliant. But it is fascinating. I mean, you know, if you'd said to people five years ago that the UK, a country that prided itself, particularly the English, on, you know, being logical and doing the right thing and being a bit dull. Would Steady end, eddies, yeah. Would end up... <laughs> Like this, like a rave in Brixton. <laughs> Hilarious. Anyway, we will watch this space. John, I will talk to you over the weekend and we'll talk to you on Monday. Just before you go, I just want to take this opportunity to thank you all so much, genuinely, for your generosity in giving us a little bit of your time each week while we have a bit of crack and talk about all sorts of good stuff. And I especially want to thank all our Patreons who make all this possible. And if you want to join us on Patreon, there's loads of extras. Not only ad-free episodes, but Macker has also put together two economics courses complete with reading lists, notes, and all sorts of good stuff. So join us on Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash Dave Mac Williams. Thanks again. Chat to you soon.